Back in the Middle Ages, if you wanted an answer to a question about Judaism, you could turn to one single source. A central place where all the information you would need had been gathered, organized, and systematized from a zillion textual sources, ensuring a rapid search process that returned an efficient answer. It was called, in Hebrew, Jugal. Get it? Right. Okay. Actually, this medieval version of Jewish Google was called the Mishnah Torah, and it came from the extraordinary mind of a single individual. His name was Moses ben Maimon, otherwise known as Maimonides, and he is generally credited as the greatest Jewish philosopher ever and whose life and works are way too vast for any one podcast episode. The Israeli writer Moshe Halbertal credits Maimonides with affecting two revolutions in Judaism. The first is in Jewish law, which he accomplished with his Mishnah Torah, and the second is a transformation in religious consciousness. Maimonides changed the way that Jews understand God, the way they approach core principles of faith, the way they apply rationality to the study of Torah, and the way that universalist ideas about humanity fit into Jewish culture and values. There's something for everyone. It's not a huge stretch to say that every Jew today is, in some ways, also a Maimonidean. Such has been his influence over the last 800 years. Maimonides began his life in the 12th century, the 1100s, in Spain, and then moved to North Africa, then ended up as a highly respected doctor and philosopher in Egypt, dying there in the year 1204. We have no contemporary portraits of him, so I have no idea what he looked like. He remains the definitive medieval philosopher of Judaism, a respected scholar in Islam, a contemporary hero in Spain, and his portrait even appears in the United States House of Representatives. So we're going to look at his revolutionary ideas here today, why Maimonides was so important. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew Ought to Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So last episode, we talked about Judah Halevi, the great Spanish-Jewish poet who wrote the seminal defense of Judaism in the Middle Ages, the Kuzari. Just as he was planning his pilgrimage to Palestine towards the end of his life, Moses ben Maimon was born in Cordoba, Spain, probably in the year 1138. In many ways, his life would be similar to that of Judah Halevi's. Both struggled under Muslim rule in Spain, both made their way to North Africa, both spent time in the Holy Land, both were incredibly accomplished scholars, and both were physicians. Indeed, as much as Maimonides is known for his Jewish scholarship, he was also a very famous doctor. When he was young, his family was driven out of Spain by the intolerant Muslim Almohad dynasty, who demanded that Jews make the infamous decision to either convert to Islam, exile, or die. Maimonides' family fled to Fez in Morocco, and then to Crusader Palestine, and finally settled in Fustat, the capital of Egypt. By then, he was a highly respected leader in both the Jewish and medical communities. He was known for a calming bedside demeanor, a careful study of various common diseases, and an early adoption of the healthy lifestyle that emphasized moderation. He would not have approved of the size of the cookie that I just ate. Yeah. His popularity brought the attention of the royal court in Egypt, and he served as the personal physician to one of Islamic history's most revered leaders, 
the great sultan, Saladin, which is a lovely little Jewish-Muslim history crossover for you. Maimonides was forced to keep a grueling schedule. He wrote that after spending all day at the palace, he comes home to find his house, quote, filled with people, both Jews and Gentiles, nobles and common people, judges and bailiffs, friends and foes. Patients go in and out until nightfall, and sometimes even until two hours and more in the night. I converse and prescribe for them while lying down from sheer fatigue, and when night falls, I am so exhausted that I can scarcely speak, end quote. And yet, all this while, Maimonides was working on a project of extraordinary ambition to compile every single Jewish law into one book that could be easily researched and referenced not just by scholars, but by ordinary and everyday Jews. His compendium would make enemies, but it would also leave a lasting impact on all future generations of Jews. Maimonides identified what he felt was a significant problem. After centuries of living in the diaspora, that is, scattered outside the land of Israel, Jews had lost their ability to easily access Jewish knowledge and wisdom relating to halakha, Jewish law and observance. If you had a question about something, you either had to ask your local rabbi and hope that he had a good answer, or you had to mine deep into the Talmudic literature, which you probably didn't have access to unless you were a major scholar. Even, even if you did, the Talmud wasn't easily organized for casual study or efficient answers. It was a massive compilation preserving centuries of nuances, arguments, disagreements, and conflicting advice. Impossible for your average Moisha to fully digest. This is not only annoying, but over time meant that, in Maimonides' view, most Jews weren't properly observing the law anymore. For ten years, Maimonides set about the task of combing through every last legal code he could find, including all 613 commandments laid out in the Torah. This was the Mishnah Torah. It was comprehensive, covering every single aspect of Jewish law. It was systematic, organized into distinct sections like laws for Shabbat and laws for divorce, so you knew exactly where to look for answers. And it was clear. He tossed out all the Talmudic discussions, all the notes, all the citations and other meandering ideas, and boiled each law down to a clear and concise explanation. Systematic, comprehensive, and clear. The United States Congress could really learn a lot. Anyway, Maimonides and his Mishnah Torah severely disrupted the rabbinical scholars' industrial complex, so this was not without a great deal of controversy. For one thing, the idea of tossing out all the Talmudic discussion was considered nearly downright heretical. Not only did Maimonides casually, arrogantly, they said, throw out centuries of discussion, dispute, and careful legal citations, but he also didn't much include his own legal reasoning. Why did he decide that a particular law said this and not the other thing, when rabbis going back hundreds of years had disagreed over the interpretation? Sure, it streamlined halakha, Jewish law, and made it more efficient for your everyday Jew. But if you wanted to understand why a law was a certain way, or to consider alternatives, you were mostly out of luck. In this way, Maimonides assumed for himself the definitive word on Jewish law. The Mishnah Torah was intended to supplant everything that came before, 
such that you could pretty much toss out every single book in your library, except the Hebrew Bible and the Mishnah Torah, and be done with it. I could probably sink a swimming pool into my house with the square footage I would save, so I'll consider. But you can imagine the reaction if someone wrote their own book on, say, American history and declared that you didn't need to ever read a single other source to fully understand the United States. It was a fairly astonishing claim to make. Completed in the year 1180, the Mishnah Torah was an astounding work of scholarship that hasn't really been matched since. Every work of legal commentary which came after it used it, either as a reference or as a template. It was a game changer, revolutionary. Jewish law was now accessible to everyone, easily referenced and clear. Not only did the Mishnah Torah thus become definitive, but so did its author. Maimonides was now the authority in the Jewish world on Jewish law and practice. And this authority would be crucial, as he laid out for the very first time specific dogmas that he insisted Jews must wholeheartedly believe. Judaism is a religion, yes, but it's also a culture and a peoplehood. So there's always been a certain latitude when it comes to demanding specific beliefs. You don't necessarily have to believe in exacting theological principles in order to be included in the Jewish community. And that was true even back in the Middle Ages. No Jewish authority had ever really organized halakha into tiers of, well, you absolutely have to believe in this commandment in order to be considered a Jew. Maimonides, though, articulated 13 beliefs that he felt were so central to Jewish faith that to doubt them for even a second was to fall into heresy. If someone were to reject the 13 principles of faith, said Maimonides, quote, one is required to hate him and destroy him, end quote, which is pretty harsh. Principle one is that God exists, is perfect in every way, eternal, and that everything in existence comes from God. Principle five is that God should be the only direction of prayer not any other gods or intermediaries. Principle 10 is that God knows the actions of humans and does not neglect them. Principle 12 is the belief in the coming of the Messiah, and principle 13 is belief in the resurrection of the dead. These 13 principles prove to be quite controversial, though to our ears today they probably don't seem that unreasonable. Various scholars quibbled over these principles, and some sages had even taken opposite viewpoints. Also, Judaism didn't have a central authority to consider, articulate, and rule on a core set of beliefs, which is why there was no such list. Once again, many felt that Maimonides had arrogated himself the right to declare absolutes where rabbis had disagreed over the finer points for centuries. And in any case, said many, there was more to the Torah and to Jewish belief than just this list of 13. Over the years, people would add and delete from the 13, and some would insist on including all 613 commandments. But what's important here is that Maimonides had set forth this dogma for the first time, once again clearly delineating a set for everyone to understand. Thanks to his personal authority as the definitive guide to Jewish law, over the following centuries the 13 principles slowly became accepted as the core theological foundation of Judaism, what we would call today orthodox belief. And although Orthodox Judaism today considers multiple streams of authority and a wide variety of important tenets, Maimonides' 13 principles of faith remain the most influential. 
The 13 principles didn't have stuff just for the most observant. It also set forth a conception of the nature of God that impacted the mindset of every Jew and set the stage for a rational approach to wrestling with Torah. It's a cliche that probably most of us, if we try to visualize God, instinctively go to the image of an old man with a long white beard. Much of that comes out of classic Christian conception. Just look at the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Judaism has long resisted physical depictions of God. But still, the Hebrew Bible imprints a highly anthropomorphized God. One who walks with humans, who sits, creates, thinks, speaks, uses hands and feet, one who appears in person to converse with the prophets, and one who has and applies emotions. God gets angry. God shows mercy. God manipulates physical objects. A plain reading of the Torah indicates a God with decidedly human characteristics. Maimonides said, this is the wrong way to think about God. Principle three of his 13 articles of faith is that God has no body, has no physical properties, cannot be compared with any kind of physical matter in nature. He says the problem arises in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 26, in which the Torah records that God created humans in God's own image. Since time immemorial, Jews took this to imply that God, therefore, has the form of a human being. Maimonides said that Jews clung to this notion because they worried that if they rejected this idea, they would be rejecting the entire truth of the Torah and even the existence of God. But through a discourse on the meaning of Hebrew words, Maimonides argues that the word image here refers not to a physical form, but to an essence, what he calls an intellectual perception. Maimonides writes that of all creatures on earth, only humans possess intellectual perception. And in this, we are comparable to the divine perception, since neither requires a physical organ or movement. You don't have to move your hand to think thoughts, and neither does God. Maimonides, though much ahead of his time, alas, had not predicted the initial stirrings of neuroscience. Maimonides said, quote, On account of the divine intellect with which man has been endowed, he is said to have been made in the form and likeness of the Almighty. But far from it be the notion that the supreme being is corporeal, having a material form. End quote. Here's what Maimonides is doing. He's giving Jews permission, as it were, to approach the Torah with a rational system of interpretation. In this case, he's saying that where the Hebrew Bible seems to imply that God has no physical characteristics, that's not literal. It's meant to be symbolic, metaphorical. You're meant to dig deeper into the study to find the real meaning behind the text. And when you hit on it, it will make sense within our understanding of the physical world. And this is how most Jews approach the Torah today, and you may not realize it, but you're studying with a Maimonidean perspective. But at the time, he wasn't intending this approach for everyone. Unlike the Mishnah Torah, which was trying to solve the problem of the Jews who knew too little, here Maimonides is tackling the opposite challenge, the small group of elite Jews who knew too much.
Okay, so let's say that you were a highly educated Jew living in Egypt in the 1100s. This meant that you were extremely knowledgeable about the necessary secular subjects, such as philosophy, logic, math, and the like. But you were also a deep study of Torah and Halakha. Your scientific knowledge tells you that elements of Torah and Judaism can't be true, yet your faith tells you that they are. The writer Adam Kirsch lays out the dilemma. Quote, either the student will sacrifice his belief in Torah, which seems full of scientific errors and absurdities, or else he will sacrifice his intellect, which seems to be turning him against the faith of his fathers. End quote. Maimonides called this situation perplexity, as in, you are perplexed about what to think. So he set himself about the task of straightening it all out. He called this work the guide for the perplexed. For him, there was no inherent contradiction between philosophy and faith, between Aristotle and the Torah. Jewish law is ultimately grounded in what is universal, such that you can pursue both science and faith without contradiction. Adam Kirsch writes that for Maimonides, quote, reason must come first, and religion must be brought into harmony with it, end quote. In other words, Maimonides was going to push Judaism into the realm of the rational. Going back to the conception of God as a human form, Maimonides wrote that most of us mere mortals just read the Torah literally, limiting ourselves to the surface-level meaning of whatever the text is. Where Genesis says that God created the world in seven days, well, then we assume that creation took seven days and don't much question it. Such an uncomplicated perspective was how the majority of Jews understood Judaism and thus derived their values, principles, faith, and lifestyles. And Maimonides didn't want to undermine that. So unlike the Mishnah Torah, which was designed to be accessed by everyone, Maimonides was only interested in speaking to a very small group of grandly educated Jews. Unlike the Mishnah Torah, the guide for the perplexed was purposely disorganized, meandering, and inconsistent, Also, that only the smartest would be able to discern the truth contained within. The guide was intended to push the reader deeper into the text, to discern the layers beneath the plain reading that would reveal the symbolic meaning of the words. If you could get at the metaphor, it would become clear that the Torah was aligned with philosophic reason. Now, we could spend weeks digging into a guide for the perplexed, and indeed many hours dissecting even one point, so let's just take a tiny, tiny little nibble here to see where Maimonides was going. The biblical creation story is a classic case of perplexity. If you knew both Greek philosophy's take on creation and the Hebrew Bible's version, the story seems a contradiction. So which should you accept as true? So the ancient Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle held that the universe was composed of layers of spheres, all spinning in circles, and the sphere for planet Earth right in the center. Yes, philosophy majors, I am boiling this down to the very quick essence here. Now, these spheres were all moving, and by the time you get to the highest sphere in the cosmos, well, something had to have given it movement in the first place. And Aristotle called this the prime mover, or the unmoved mover. 
Aristotle said, quote, There must be an immortal, unchanging being, ultimately responsible for all wholeness and orderliness in the sensible world, end quote. So in what became known as the cosmological argument, Aristotle argued that by applying rational logic to the natural forces of the universe, you prove that God exists. Not only that, but both God and the world are eternal. The world wasn't suddenly created by an act of God. The religion scholar Kenneth Seaskin writes that, quote, There is no moment when it first comes to be and therefore does not owe its existence to a decision to create. It exists not because of anything God does, but simply because of what God is. End quote. In the Aristotelian view, it's impossible for something to come from nothing. Seaskin writes, quote, If God is perfect, it makes no sense to suppose that God could ever do anything new, such as bring the world into being. End quote. Now, if you're confused, don't worry, because I didn't follow that at all either. In any case, Aristotle posed a problem for Judaism's conception of creation. I mean, the first thing the Hebrew Bible hits you with is that God created the world in seven days. As Adam Kirsch points out, quote, The account of creation in Genesis seems to say that God created the universe out of nothing at a certain moment. This is the heart of the conflict between philosophy and Judaism. If the universe existed eternally, then it is bound by eternal, unchanging rules, and there's no room for God to enter into history. If the universe was created by divine fiat, however, then God's will is effective, and he could choose to intervene in his creation at key moments, end quote. Key moments, such as giving Moses and the Israelites the Torah at Mount Sinai. Yet this defies the Aristotelian logic that the ultra-educated Jew would be well aware of. So Maimonides winds his way through numerous arguments trying to find a rational basis for the Genesis version of creation. It's often unclear which side he is taking, Aristotle or the Bibles. Ultimately, Maimonides suggests that threading this needle is beyond our reasoning capabilities. At this point, we should simply trust what the Torah is telling us. Take it on faith that it all makes sense. But he does seed an argument in favor of the possibility of creation within the Aristotelian logic. Kenneth Seaskin writes, quote, For all we know, the origin of a thing may be completely different from its development later on. Thus it is presumptuous to suppose that we can extrapolate from our experience of the world as it is, at present, to the moment of its creation, end quote. In other words, Aristotle would argue that how we observe the world today informs how it must have been at the beginning. But a Jewish reading of the creation story suggests that what happened at the beginning was so utterly different than how we understand our world today that our contemporary principles don't help us to understand it. Using this logic, the Genesis version of creation is entirely possible. Maimonides managed to both elevate the rational and protect the core tenets of Judaism. While philosophy and science must reign supreme, he seemed to believe, it is also true that there are limits to our knowledge, and we have Judaism there to fill in those gaps. Ultimately, then, there's no conflict between the two. Feel free to pursue your scientific studies and your life of faith. The Israeli-American scholar Menachem Kellner writes that, quote, Maimonides has a level of authority in Judaism such that his views are considered legitimate simply by virtue of his having held them, end quote. Boy, I wish I had that. 
Returning to Moshe Halbertal's view of Maimonides as affecting two revolutions in Jewish law and Jewish consciousness, Maimonides brought to Judaism something for everyone. For the Orthodox, he gave the 13 principles of faith, codifying several theological ideas into a single foundation of belief. The Mishnah Torah systematized halacha, Jewish law, so that everyone could access it and know the laws. He also put Judaism on a rational foundation, moving Jews away from a literal interpretation of Torah that would have God endowed with human characteristics, a logical impossibility. Yet the idea that we are created in God's image, not physically but intellectually, meant that all people were thus created, not just Jews. Maimonides thus also created space for a universalist understanding of the world. Menachem Kellner writes that, quote, His perspective makes possible a universalist vision of the messianic era, in which all people worship God from a stance of spiritual equality, and Jews are in no way thought to be superior, end quote. Maimonides then gives us the best of both worlds, a way to follow the commandments and live a grounded Jewish life, while also reading the Torah as a rational and in some places even universal text. The author Daniel Davies writes that, quote, True worship of God, according to Maimonides, involves being the best possible versions of ourselves, end quote. Maimonides' humanist approach to Judaism found impact for the next 800 years and earned him a place in the pantheon of philosophy in Jewish, Islamic, and Christian society. He remains a revered figure, considered the greatest of Jewish philosophers. When he died in Egypt in the year 1204, he was brought to Tiberias in Israel for burial. His tomb reads, From Moses to Moses, there never arose another like Moses. All right, so much more to talk about, but we'll wrap things up. Maimonides was a deeply rational thinker. His understanding of the relationship between God and the moral universe was grounded in the reason and logic of Greek philosophy. So he utterly rejected any notions of mysticism, the idea that there is knowledge inaccessible to the intellect. Yet his era saw the stirrings of interest in the mystical side of Judaism. Over the next few hundred years, these thoughts and ideas and practices coalesced into a discipline that became known as Kabbalah. And next time, we'll be talking about the great Kabbalistic teacher of the 1500s, a man known as Ha'ari, the Lion, Rabbi Isaac Luria. As always, my website is jewoughtoknow.com and my email is jewoughtoknowpodcast at gmail.com. We are halfway through the season. Hope you've been enjoying it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Lahitraot. See you later.